Hey everybody, this is the fourth SFD short based on something I wrote a little while ago and then updated to keep pace with basically all of the horrible stuff that's happened in the last two years. I also started recording for the next set of Iran shows today, so the first one should, I think, be out in a week. Alright, today's episode is called Liberal Arts. My name's John, and this is Safer Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal, to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. So, when I first got to Mexico as a Peace Corps volunteer, the folks in the group of volunteers who'd arrived before us, kind of the sophomore class to our freshman one, who had already been in country for a year, they called me Georgetown. I hadn't meant to mention where I'd gone to college so often, and I don't think I realized I'd been doing it as I did it, but the nickname stuck. Now, I've gotten way less caught up in where or how or even if people went to school since I graduated. And in my experience, not a whole lot of people outside of the foreign policy crowd have even heard of Georgetown. But I came to Mexico straight out of college, and at the time, it was my major touchstone. So way back when, a friend from that group of volunteers let me know what my nickname was, and I pretty much stopped mentioning where I'd gone to school entirely, both in person and on my then website. But there came a time a couple of years ago when there was this intense navel-gazing debate going around between Slate and The Atlantic and Salon, and all the other usual liberal opinion churners about the nature of college in the United States when I got to thinking about it a little bit more. I hadn't brought up my school so often when I first got to Mexico because I was trying to put on airs, but because I felt connected to it. Now, there were a lot of things I disliked about Georgetown, how full it was with entitled rich kids, and how everyone in D.C. fetishized the Northeast, how fashion went off the deep end my sophomore year and everybody in the city started dressing like they were about to go up to Hyannisport with the Kennedys, 
all boat shoes and pastel pants and little anchors and sailboats all over everything. Despite all that, and how much more those same negatives are accentuated at some of the Ivy Leagues, I still found myself, and find myself, with this kind of nostalgia for the hoary old campuses of the East Coast, and the glory days when an American aristocracy was growing up in prep schools, heading to the elitist universities, and then marching straight into the highest levels of civil service and elected office. I talked a little bit about that in the third Iran episode, in the way that both of the Dulles brothers and Kermit Roosevelt, and, well, pretty much most of the guys in government at the time, had come from this tiny area in New England. Now, I know I'm not nostalgic for the whiteness of it, or for the richness of it, or even the exclusivity or the entitled part of it. Sure, maybe in my heart of hearts I'd have loved to be a Kennedy in the 60s, but I think that was a bad system, and I think the results of government by the Kennedys and the Dulles brothers tend to speak for themselves. So what was it exactly that I'm looking back towards? Nowadays, we tend to play down how much our graduate institutions mean to us. We don't call ourselves Harvard men or Columbia men like characters in Salinger or Fitzgerald novels do. We don't get together and sing the alma mater for old time's sake. I don't know if it's that they don't leave as much a mark on us as they used to, or if we're determined not to be tied to anything so solid and so old in our eagerness to be young and restless and free. But I think I am a Georgetown man or an East Coast man or whatever, and I want to be. Because there's something that lives on in those ancient ivy-obsessed ruins that's fading away everywhere else. We've lost our appreciation for the arts. Not art, as such. There seems to be more room for the ultra-quirky and the ultra-expensive in the art world than ever. I mean the liberal arts. Any president or politician looking to be tough on education rants about our science funding, rails against our math proficiency, bemoans how we stack up to the Germans and the Japanese in our standardized testing. And when we remember to be upset about college debt, the first students we always turn on are the ones who studied history or English or, God forbid, philosophy. How could they? When we talk about what we ought to be studying to make our country greater or our parents happier, it's always business and economics and hard sciences. Science itself is more popular than ever, or at least it was before Donald Trump was president. And researchers all over the internet can score hits by the tens of thousands by penning neat little takedowns of philosophy. I love my university and most of the old guard of the coast because they still value the liberal arts. They still maintain an atmosphere where those disciplines are important not just as a means to a job or neat padding on an application to law or medical school, but in and of themselves. Until the last half of the 20th century, the Western world was built on the liberal arts. Greek and Latin and the classics were the foundation of any full education, and with good reason. The eudaimonia, or flowering, of Pericles' Athens and the entire length of the Roman Republic and later Empire were based upon what became known as the Quadrivium, a curriculum of history, philosophy, rhetoric, and literature. Almost up to the modern day, those were still the building blocks with which centuries of statesmen built our civilization. All the famous Renaissance and Enlightenment engineers and scientists, from Galileo to Newton to Volta, had been historians, philosophers, and rhetoricians first. Almost up to the Second World War, so-called hard subjects got piled on top of the basics, rather than substituting for them. Somewhere along the way, though, they lost their prestige, and we lost our faith in them. And I think that's had two important consequences. The first is the confusion of some knowledge with sufficient knowledge. I don't think that you have too many philosophers claiming that they can expound on engineering, but the opposite is true, to the extent that we've got a term for it engineer's disease. It's the idea that expertise in one, usually technical area, 
translates into expertise in all areas, especially if that first area got you rich. And it's become a society-wide thing. Think of how often we've seen businessmen claim that running a company is like running a country, or how the software engineers come masters of the universe in Silicon Valley have convinced themselves that if they were just given the reins, they'd gulch gulch the country into some kind of techno-utopia. The consequences, every time we do elect a businessman, have become clear, and should be unavoidable now that Donald Trump is president. Business is not like government, and trying to run one like the other ends up with people getting hurt and the institution itself being damaged. And when the Silicon Valley dudes insist that we need to deregulate and disrupt society in order to improve it, they're almost always doing so without an eye to the downsides for the people who don't live in the valley, downsides that pretty much any historian could point out to them. It's not that the hard sciences or hard scientists or engineers are by any means bad, but that they benefit from the broader perspective and moral grounding that a few more classes in the arts might have given them. I think I'm going to build this point out into its own post and its own show, because I think Mexico, with its strange mix of really competent technocrats and really terrible government, is an excellent example of how science, totally divorced from the arts, plays out. But the second effect of our loss of faith in the liberal arts, at least until the election of Donald Trump, which has really thrown a wrench in all these posts, has been even more pernicious. All through the beginning and the middle of the last century, the arts gave ground to the soft and social sciences, to sociology and economics and political science. We felt that we could abandon the unanswered questions of philosophy and the endless revision and analysis of history for something much more tangible and empirical. And as our hard sciences flourished faster than they ever had before, we felt that we could bring rationality and systematization to the hearts and minds and money of men, could quantify and define our world until we could understand and manipulate it as well as experiments in a laboratory. Hannah Arendt marked our disaster in Vietnam and the mendacity of government that came with it as the end results of that systematization of the arts. McNamara's whiz kids were, for her, the apex of the trend. Brilliant men who'd been trained to understand the world and told that they could control it. Men who went on to destroy entire nations in the service of theories that failed to play out. From her Crises of the Republic, quote, Under these circumstances, there are indeed few things that are more frightening than the steadily increasing prestige of scientifically-minded brain trusters in the councils of government during the last decades. The trouble is not that they are cold-blooded enough to quote-unquote think the unthinkable, but that they do not think. Instead of indulging in such old-fashioned, uncomputerizable activity, they reckon with the consequences of certain hypothetically assumed constellations without, however, being able to test their hypotheses against actual circumstances. The logical flaw in these hypothetical constructions of future events is always the same. What first appears as a hypothesis with or without implied alternatives, according to the level of sophistication, turns immediately, usually after a few paragraphs, into a fact, which then gives birth to a whole string of similar non-facts, with the result that the purely speculative nature of the whole enterprise is forgotten. Needless to say, this is not science, but pseudoscience. And here, Arendt quotes Noam Chomsky, quote, the desperate attempt of the social and behavioral sciences to imitate the surface features that really have significant intellectual content, unquote and unquote. Maybe what was lacking in these men, these McNamara's Widskits, these governmental brain trusters, was the intimate acquaintance with hubris that would have come with the Greek, 
an understanding of the tragedy that always follows when man believes himself to be master of the world. Or maybe not. But I do know that my disillusionment with poli-sci and economics and all the so-called soft sciences, which you might have caught wind of in some of my longer shows, came directly from my brushes with the WizKids' spiritual successors. In school, we learned that there are several requirements for a theory of political science. Two of them are relevant here. The first is that any given theory must be parsimonious. Like a good proof in mathematics, it should say no more than it needs to, and its concision, its shortness, should have a certain kind of beauty to it. Not many theories in modern political science were, as far as I could see, parsimonious. I read brilliant papers by brilliant people, all of whom had drilled down miles deep into the analysis of state change and democratic transition, all of whom had created entire galaxies of independent variables and came up with systems so exacting and particular that they could only ever apply to the given case which gave them rise. So that was convoluted, but what I mean is that you'd be assigned an article in class by a pair of political scientists with a title like Democratic Instability and Regime Change in Guatemala, right? And their stated goal of these two writers would be to analyze the changeover from military dictatorship to shaky democracy in that country from the 1980s to the 1990s, the same period that we covered in the last Guatemala show, in a way that would help other countries in similar situations navigate that same transition. That is, do this, don't do that, be aware of this, and you should make it through. Great. So these two writers, they'd lay out a neat two-paragraph history of the transition, and then they'd start trying to map that history as if it were an actual lab experiment. Number of death squads would be one variable, number of guerrilla groups, presence of liberation theology, of Marxism, of Maoism, number of U.S. dollars invested, a sub-variable there for military versus civilian aid, the number of indigenous languages spoken. By the end of this, they might have 20 or 30 different variables, and they'd have set up a system, sometimes with literal equations, that seemed to describe what happened in Guatemala very well. But which, given how precise they'd made it, couldn't apply to any other country ever unless it was Guatemala, again. So not parsimonious. And the second requirement in political science was that a given theory had to be predictive, in the same way that a scientific theory is predictive. If you have an initial set of given conditions, the theory will predict a result. And if it's a good theory, that result will happen if you recreate that set of conditions in the real world. Right? We have a theory of gravity. It describes the way a ball will fall if you let it go six feet over the ground. There's a set of equations that go with that theory, and if you let a ball go at six feet over the ground, they describe exactly how that ball would fall. It's predictive. And we do not have good predictive theories in political science or in international relations. In fact, we don't have any predictive theories in either of those two disciplines. If we did, one assumes, the world wouldn't be such a goddamn mess. And that lack extends to economics and sociology and every other one of the quote-unquote social and behavioral sciences in which we play at being Harry Seldon, pretending that if we just defined enough variables and finessed enough language, that eventually we would unveil the mechanics of humanity and history. And it's totally garbage. Much of the wreckage of the last century and our violent and ignoble entry into this one were and are the result of pretending that we're in the know. The massive failures abroad of White Houses from Kennedy through Nixon 
the third world adventurism of Reagan and Bush, the disastrous outcomes of the neoliberal consensus and Greenspanism in the economy, the renewed frothing of the Middle East and our childish quote-unquote state-building and democracy promotion in that region, all of them are the result of a failure to understand that we don't understand, and that beyond a certain point, the world itself refuses to be understood. That's not to say that all prediction is impossible. I switched from studying poli-sci to studying history because it seemed to me that a strong historical grounding and straightforward thought were the only way to peer into the darkness in front of us. Again from Arendt, quote, History does not teach much, but still teaches considerably more than social science theories, unquote. Economists the nation over in the 1990s, for example, praised Bill Clinton's final destruction of Glass-Steagall in the interests of smaller and smarter government, but anyone who cared to study the history of our economy would have seen that massive loosening of the shackles on our financial industry has led invariably to instability, profiteering, and penury, which is exactly what it did a decade out from Clinton in the collapse in 2008. And looking at the wreck that is our last two decades of foreign policy, a historian has little to do but despair at the lack of common sense and reasonable foresight. The British and the French taught a masterclass on intervention in the Middle East at the close of the First World War, the lesson of which was that Western involvement, Western imposition of Western government, and Western political forms will always beget resistance and reprisals. The British spent centuries, centuries, trying to prop up a hand-picked ruler in Afghanistan, but we couldn't be bothered in our rush to unseat the Taliban to crack a book and explore the most ignominious defeats in their history let alone look at the obvious reasons that we'd been attacked in the first place. The West has known or had the ability to know since the First Crusade that the only sure thing to foment Islamic extremism and direct it our way is Western occupation of Muslim lands and holy places, be they Jerusalem, Acre, the entire Levant, or Mecca, or Medina, or the whole of the Hejaz and Arabia. It pains me that the disciplines that encourage us to doubt the status quo as delivered that teach us to look backwards before marching forwards, that the stories and lessons and above all the searching of literature and history and philosophy are losing ground. I know the hard sciences have a place and an important one, and that researchers and devotees of the scientific method have a deep appreciation for the not knowing that is the necessary precursor to knowledge. But our devotion to the soft sciences, to the pseudo-sages, the problem-solvers and consultants that peddle snake oil systems and nation-building schemes, and above all the Chicago school economists that play off graphs and guesswork as total understanding, it's all eroding our ability to be unsure, to question our way forward, and in that questioning, to act more wisely. I stopped telling people where I went to school years ago. But in my own small ways, through the blog and through the podcast, I'm still trying to share a little bit of what I've learned, and to bring a little bit of the light of history and philosophy and literature back to where it should be, front and center, guiding us, and, maybe, protecting us from ourselves. Here into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. 
During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.